So, let's start with that with a prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus to pray that you will open our eyes, that we will see you and your Son through your word, and that these words might be living and live for us, and that really we will see the wonderful, priceless grace and possibilities that there are in your love, and that we might simply say yes to you and to your Son all the way through. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Okay, so we're carrying on with Acts 11, where we finished yesterday. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Now, it was Saul who had, later became Paul, who had persecuted the Christians and had got Stephen stoned to death. And he was crazy mad, persecuting killing, he later says, torturing the Christians. And so, initially, the Christians were Jews. They were Jews living in Jerusalem. They were the first group of Christians. But you see how whatever man does to try to stop God's way actually works the other way. He thought he was going to wipe these people out, but instead they scatter. They scatter, and what do they do? They take the message with them. They take the message with them. And here you are. We all think that, oh, hang on. Now, when bad things happen to me, well, that's it. But God is a master at using the negative, the bad things, to bring about his purpose, to bring about good out of evil. That is really the big narrative of God's work in our lives, his work over history, to bring good out of evil. And in the end, Jesus will come back establish God's kingdom here on the earth when all this stuff will be resolved and finally we will see the purpose of evil. Now you can't see it in the short term. Why is this happening or that happening? Why this suffering? You cannot see it right now, but in the final end we will, we will see it. So they went preaching, but to nobody apart from Jews. Now Jesus had been very clear Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all nations, baptising people in the name of Jesus, etc. And yet they didn't get it. And as I was saying yesterday, sometimes things can be black and white, clear, simple in the Bible, and you don't get it. It was quite obvious that it was God's purpose for Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles and non-Jews, to be saved. But they didn't get the obvious. They thought, well, we can only preach to Jews. Only Jews can be baptised after all. No, of course not. It's the same with us. You can read in the Bible the simplest statements. He that believes and is baptised will be saved. Right? That we will be saved. That God loves me. That he has a, a desire for the work of his hands. And we can say, ah, no, nah, I don't see that. But suddenly it breaks on you. Wow, this is all true for little me. But, you know, there's some blindness in us. We all think we're smart people. I, uh, you know, I stop at a red light. I don't, I don't walk out in front of a car, in front of a truck. I'm, I'm a normal, logical thinking person. And that may be so, but when it comes to spiritual things, I'm afraid we're not so smart. And we make incredible, stupid mistakes. We don't see the obvious. Well, there were some of them, verse 20, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they reached Antioch, spoke to the Gentiles, also preaching the Lord Jesus. You see, these guys couldn't keep it to themselves. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. 
if you really are convinced that if I die, my eternity is, is guaranteed, that I am going to live forever when the Lord Jesus returns. I've been baptised, I'm connected with his death and resurrection, even death itself is no, is no item for me, then you cannot help but share that with other people. You can't help it. It, it comes naturally. And you see it here in our, our, our crazy church down the pub or here at lunchtime church. People invite other people. It's, it's natural. It happens. But they reached Antioch. Well, Antioch, when you read about Antioch, this was known as like sin city. That there were prostitutes everywhere. There were idol temples everywhere. It was well known. It was like the West Croydon of the ancient world. There's all sorts of very funny people hanging out around West Croydon Station, as you know, up to all sorts of things. Um, and it's the same, it was the same in Antioch. Well, these guys had been persecuted, they were Jews, and they got to Antioch. And it was in Antioch, in this sin city, that they spoke to Gentiles as well, preaching the Lord Jesus. They thought, well, why not? And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to, to the Lord. The hand of the Lord was with them, and people believed. Well, Paul says that faith is a gift from God. And in another sense, of course, you've got to believe. You've got to make the choice. But there is this higher hand. Read about Lydia. That the Lord opened her heart, and she believed. But he's doing that to anyone who hears the gospel. He wants you to believe. It is not that God is facing off against man over an open Bible and says, look guys, I, uh, I gave him my son, I gave him my word, it's, it's over to you now. He is more proactive than that. He is reaching out across the table and leading you to that. We, we finished yesterday um, talking about that very thing, didn't we, just there in verse 18. Then to the Gentiles has God given repentance to life, not forgiveness, he gave them repentance. Now to repent, you may say, well, that's up to me if I repent or not. Well, yes it is. But there is also this higher hand. And it's that higher hand, which we've all seen. If you look back on your life, there's a higher hand in your life. It, it's not sort of random that all of us, many of us not born in this country, many of us who spent, like me, long, most of our lives actually not in this country, it's no random chance that we're all sitting here. There's a higher hand. Why didn't you get scribbled by a, by a bus or by the tram down, I don't know, down George Street once? You know, well, well, because of this higher hand. And that is what you could call grace, this undeserved gift. So, the hand of the Lord was with them, and they believed. So it's sort of two sides. You've got to want to believe. But, you see, if God just said, well, it's over to you, you've got free will, you use it as you want. I'm afraid we are so weak, we're so weak that we unfortunately will not keep on using that free will as we should. If on the other hand, God just nabs a certain guy and makes him believe, well, then man is a puppet and God doesn't want puppets. So there's a very fine balance between... God pushing man, because we're so weak, really, to do it ourselves, and on the other hand, coming down so heavy, that man is just a puppet. God doesn't want puppets. So, 
there's these two aspects that he, he gets the balance perfectly right in the lives of millions of people, it seems to me, at any one time, working so closely with every one of us, not just sometimes, but all the time. It's amazing. God is mindful of man. We read that the other day, we talked about Psalm 8. That means his mind is full of us. Right? Now, but the fact that you and I, unfortunately, only sometimes think about God, we can therefore think that God only sometimes thinks about me. But actually, no. You and me might only sometimes think about God, but he is on us, on our case, all the time. So, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and were turned to the Lord. I would like to translate that as they were turned to the Lord. Now, again, that is the idea for repentance. I love that ringtone. They were turned to the Lord. They believed, and the second second bit was that they were turned to the Lord, or converted, or repented to the Lord. So, that's what happens, you see, when you get baptised, that then this hand of God turns you. It's called the gift of the Holy Spirit, if you like. Or the hand of God, if you prefer that. That will turn you. Now, you can resist it. You can resist it. Say, no, I don't want it. But that's one reason I encourage people to be baptised. As the Lord said in John 3, um, you've got to be born of water and of the Spirit, and then you will inherit the kingdom of God. So, that's what God is willing to do, to turn people to, to his Son, to actually operate directly on the human mind. As I said yesterday, we don't have any buttons on the side of our head that you can press to program yourself. But God, God can do that. God can do this psychological miracle in you. I gave the example yesterday of someone struggling with alcohol addiction and they go to supermarket, they go to Tesco's or whatever and there's a whole like wall full of alcohol. And this is on special offer. And that's on special offer. And wow, a whole bottle of wine for 2 99 Wow, you know, it's cheaper than Coca-Cola. But, you know, oh, wow, wouldn't that be great? But you need to have a mindset that doesn't look at it like that. I, for example, don't struggle with alcoholism and I don't drink at all. I go to Tesco's, I, I, I see the, the wall full of alcohol and I'm like... Oh, where's the milk? I want to buy some milk. Where's the cornflakes? I was looking for cornflakes. There's blooming alcohol there. Um, you know, I, I don't look at it like, oh, wouldn't, I, wouldn't it just be great to, oh, I have 2 99 to buy that. And oh, for, for 6 99 I could get whatever, whiskey or something on special. No, I, I don't have that. And that's what you want to have, right? That mindset. But God will give that to you. You may say, oh, that's a big bridge. It's a bridge too far between where I am now and what you're talking about. And it is a bridge too far, but in God's strength, it isn't. And I know people who've been changed like that. But, you know, God is not a, a miracle worker in the sense of five-minute wonders. We are a new creation, and therefore old things become old, and they pass away, and all things become new, because he's making a new creation. But that is not a five-minute wonder. This is a lifetime's work, and he's making something beautiful, and you don't make something beautiful in, you know, five-second wonders. So, 22, the report concerning them came to the ears of the church, which was in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas as far as Antioch. How can a church have ears? How does a church have ears? 
Well, the idea is that the church is the body of Jesus. So yes, the body has got ears, hasn't it? So, when you're baptised under Jesus, you go in the water, you're underwater, it's like death with Jesus, and your body comes up out of the water. Many of you did it in our bathtub in South Croydon. And you come out of that water, and you are, in that sense, connected with the body of Jesus, and you become his body. And therefore, as Mother Teresa, I think, said, you know, Jesus has no other hands or face or arms in this world apart from yours. And suddenly you, you have meaning. I have got something in my life. I am part of the body of Jesus. Let's face it, you walk out on that street in Croydon, and, I mean, people don't read the Bibles. People don't think about Jesus. They're all caught up with this, that, and the other. Until they see you and me. And you and me are the only chance they've got of actually meeting Jesus. So, well, the church heard that these Gentiles up in Antioch were hearing the gospel, so they sent Barnabas as far as Antioch. That's as if to say, now Barnabas, Barney, you go to Antioch, but don't go any further. You're going to see in verse 25 that he doesn't obey that. He went to Tarsus, which is beyond Antioch which is a, a driven that road actually from Antakya, what is Antioch, to Mersin in Turkey, which is Tarsus. And it's about, I don't know, two, three hundred kilometers uh, along the coast. He doesn't do what the church say. Now, you just go as far as Antioch. He actually goes to there, and then he goes on to Tarsus to find Saul. Anyway, verse 23. When he had arrived and had seen the grace of God, this undeserved Favour, he was glad, and he encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should cleave to the Lord, the Lord Jesus. So he's saying, have a purpose of heart. And the problem is in this world that people aren't motivated by anything to stick to anything with a purpose of heart. They drift into this relationship. Oh, then this relationship come along. Oh, stuff that. Oh, yeah, they start this job and they work for a bit. Oh, don't like that. Oh, I'm going here. Oh, this, I don't like where I'm living, I'm going to shift over here, blah, blah, blah. There's no motivation to stick or to cleave to something with purpose of heart. And no surprises, really, because there's nothing really great out there, is there? There aren't many great relationships to be had. There isn't any great career to be had. Money doesn't grow on trees, and even if you get it, big deal, so what? Um, There's nothing to really motivate you. You know, life is a day at the race, isn't it? You know, for all of us to some degree, in the flesh, in the world. If, if life is just a day at the races, then what are you going to, you're not going to stick to anything with purpose of heart. But he encouraged them that with purpose of heart they would cleave to the Lord Jesus. And that's it. Now, cleave. The Bible says about marriage that a man leaves father and mother and cleaves to his wife and they become, they are made over time into one flesh. So when you talk about cleaving to the Lord Jesus, the idea is of getting married. That we are married to him, of course, in a spiritual sense. And that's what happens, that's what starts when you get baptised. That you start this relationship with him and with purpose of heart you cleave to him. And he is the one who will not disappoint He's the one who, over the years, you will not see has got feet of clay. You will see that he actually is not just, you know, what looked like the knight in shining armour, but he's not really. No, he is the one. So, 
24, because Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Many people were added to the Lord. See, added to the Lord, to the Lord Jesus. But you become part of him when you're baptized. And he went to Tarsus to seek out Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. Why did he go to Tarsus to find Saul? Well, we've read about Saul. You know, he was persecuting the Christians. Then he's going to Damascus. He gets his vision of Jesus. He's blinded for three days. He repents. He gets baptized. He starts preaching Jesus up in Damascus, escapes down the wall, comes to Jerusalem, preaches Jesus. But it seems that he then went a bit dead. And he went back to Tarsus, which was his hometown. You could say it was PTSD, he had mental health issues after all that trauma, that's that's possible. Or you could say that, well, those Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, who of course he had persecuted, although they sort of accepted him on one hand and on another hand they didn't, I mean, he said he murdered Christians, he'd murdered their kids, he'd murdered their parents, he tortured them, you know? Well, I can understand why it was psycho-wise, it was a bit hard for them to accept him. So I think he, for whatever reason, church didn't accept me, I've got mental health issues, or whatever, I've got stress, he just went home and stayed at home. But Barnabas knew that, and he goes all the way to Tarsus, which, as I say, is about 300 kilometres on from Antioch, and it wasn't, you know, getting a train or something, walking, donkey, whatever it was. It's a fairly big town, so where's Saul? To find him. And when he had found him, in other words, it took him a while. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. That implies he took him to Antioch. Now, what a nice guy. To actually go around to someone's house or go 300 kilometres to to some guy's house and say, come on, you're capable of better than this, sitting at home, nursing your mental health issues, sitting at home, nursing the fact that you're disillusioned with the church and they didn't accept you and you don't think they're quite how they should be and they can't forgive you for your past. Come on, mate. You can can do better than that. You, You can get on your feet. Now, that is the spirit of what it is to be a Christian, to go and seek someone out who's in that position and say, come on. So for the whole year, they were gathered together with the church and taught many people. And there in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Well, Antioch, as I say, was Sin City with whores on every street corner and uh, idol worshipping going on everywhere. And a big mix of people there from all over the world, all over the Roman world. And that is where Christianity really got going in such an unlikely place. So, that's where the disciples were first called Christians, which literally means a a Christ person, a Jesus person. And that is what it is to be a Christian, to be focused around a person. Not focused around a church, a denomination, a theology, or anything else, but to be focused around a person. That's what it is to be in relationship with with a person, a living person, Jesus, to be added to the Lord Jesus. To, with purpose of heart, as Barnabas liked to say, to cleave to that man. That is what it is to be a Christian. Now, in those days, there came down prophets from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, called Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. And the disciples, every man according to his ability, 
decided to send relief to the believers that lived in Judea. So, remember the background, that there in Jerusalem was where Christianity had started, but they were all Jews who were very leery about Gentiles, non-Jews, getting baptised. And they thought that Christianity was only for Jews, a lot of them, that's what a lot of them thought. And they were like, well, if you want to be baptised, you've got to get circumcised. Oh, whoops, I'm a woman. What about that? Oh, well, you don't count, you're a woman. Um, they were sort of conservative conservatives. Um, and then, oh, hang, some Gentiles did get baptised. But then those people in Jerusalem, there's a famine. So they haven't got any food. Now, in those days, there was no NHS, there was no social services, there was no benefits from the government. Where did you get your help from when there's a hard time? Well, you got it from your religion. And these guys, these Jewish Christians, had all been part of the temple in Jerusalem. And they would have got help from the temple. And, oh, whoops, it's... Uh, it's all finished. We can't go to the temple anymore. They chucked us out. We're Christians. So they would have really been doing it hard. And in those days, one ethnic group never helped another one. There was a famine. Well, let's say the, uh, the Armenians helped the Armenians. Or the, the Jews helped the Jews. Or whatever it might have been. You didn't cross the boundary to give help to another group. So he see what's happened. That up there in Antioch, which is a few hundred kilometers north of Jerusalem, there have been these Gentiles baptized. And they hear that the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem are out of food. And uh, my tendency would have been to think, yeah, well, they didn't want me anyway. They thought I'm some dirty Gentile and I'm from dirty Antioch. And they're all very pious in their most holy city of Jerusalem. And I live in Antioch which is, you know, as I say, Sin City. Um, oh, well, okay, so they're without grub, are they? Well, there they are. I do hope, I do hope that sorts out for them. But they, they who are Gentiles, who would have been, let's say, Turks, Italians, Greeks, whoever, they decided that they, as Turks, Italians, Greeks, or whatever their names were in those days, would send... According, every man according to his ability to send some help to the believers who lived in Judea. Now, as I said to you yesterday, every word in the Bible is significant because this is the inspired word of God. So, 29, the disciples, every man according to his ability, each one of them, not just out of wealthy, or those who could afford it, but everybody's got a few coppers, right? Everybody decided that I will send something to, to those arrogant, pious, holier-than-thou brethren of ours in Jerusalem. And verse 30 says, which also they did. That sounds to be stating the obvious, but the thing is, verse 29, they decided, verse 30, and they did it. Because there's a big gap between deciding to do something and doing it, especially when it comes to giving some money or giving some help. There's a big gap. We all may decide, oh yeah I, I, yeah, I would like to help over there, oh, but, well, it actually comes to doing it. That's a different thing. They decided and they did it. And it says, verse 29, that the disciples decided to send relief. What is a disciple? A disciple literally means 
disciple literally means a student, a learner. A, a disciple is a student, is a learner. Not a professor, but a student, a learner. That is what the word disciple means. And in fact, the, the uh, disciples of Jesus were told, go and make disciples of all nations. So what is it to be a disciple? It is to be a student. It is to be, as I was saying, in relationship with Jesus and growing and learning more and more about him. Well, in most relationships, in human relationships under the sun, in secular life, relationships get boring. After a bit, because you think, I know everything about this person, your partner or wherever it might be, I know everything about them. I know how they're going to react, I know how they think, I know the history, blah, blah. But in relationship with the Lord Jesus, it's not like that. You are the eternal student. You are the eternal learner. Because we're actually going to do that forever. This is life eternal, the Lord Jesus said, John 17, that we might know, and it's in this continuous tense, that we might Keep on growing to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So that is what eternity is about, this growing in relationship with him. And we start out now as disciples, and actually we will be the eternal disciples of, of Jesus. Right, so guys, we're going to give thanks for the bread and the juice that represent the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as this tiny little piece of bread and tiny little liquid becomes part of your physical body, you see, what this symbolises is our connection with him and his connection with me, that I am in him and he is in me and he's living in me. And you show it in a bigger sense by being baptised, connecting with his body in water, and you show it in an even bigger sense, of course, in a life lived in him, as his body, for him, 24-7. So let's thank God. Heavenly Father, through the Lord, we thank you for him. We thank you for your son and for these symbols of his body and his blood, his life, that we openly take into ourselves, asking you and him into us. For his sake. Amen.